Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our associate care pastor, Joshua Masters, begins a new series on the Book of Ruth. If you want to watch the video of this message or listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can find all of that and much more on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you in your walk with Christ. Hey everybody, we are so glad that you are here with us today. I know that this has been a long and difficult season, hasn't it? And we are all looking forward to the time when we can be together in person again. But I'm grateful that we're here together as we can be over this technology. And we are still here and we still want to encourage you. So my question for you this morning is during this pandemic, have you been filled with hope or have you been filled with worry? Today we're starting a brand new series called Harvesting a Life of Hope, and we'll be focusing on how we can find that hope regardless of our circumstances. Now, this series was actually planned long before the pandemic took hold, but I don't think it's a mistake that this first week is about finding hope in times of crisis. See, God's hand is always working in what seems like the ordinary events of everyday life. And that's exactly what the book of Ruth is all about. So what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to look at finding hope in our own lives through the lens of Ruth's story. Now, Ruth is a very different kind of Old Testament book. There are no kings, no angels, no burning bushes, no overt miracles. In fact, God doesn't even seem to speak in this book, at least not at first glance. On its surface, this is the story of everyday people facing everyday struggles, just like you and me. But it's actually the story of how God's hand is quietly working all the time. You know, we talk a lot at Brookwood Church about what it means to hear from God because we know and we've experienced that God still speaks. But can you see the evidence of his work even when you don't hear him. Now, God may not speak noticeably or directly in this book, but his fingerprints are all over it. In the heartbreaking struggles of an average family, we're going to see how God is silently working to restore their lives and foreshadowing the gospel in our own lives. This book is just as relevant today as it was when it was written. So as we walk through this series, the question that we should ask ourselves is this. Can we see Christ working even when we don't see wonders? Because that's how we harvest a life of hope. So let's jump into the text. So for those of you who have your Bibles with you, in front of you, we are in Ruth chapter 2. That's after the book of Judges. If you're watching in our online campus, you can follow along by clicking the Bible tab up above your chat window. And if you're watching on some other platform, that's okay too. You can either follow along using the Brookwood Church app, or if you want to, just kick back and we'll put the verses up on the screen for you and you can just read them that way. So we're going to start in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. 
So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Now we see from the very first line that this took place during the time of the judges. And if you've read the book of Judges, then you know that it was a time of spiritual and moral chaos. Everyone did whatever they wanted to do. In Judges 17.6, it said, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? It was a time between Josh's conquest of Joshua. I guess they didn't call him Josh. Uh, it was a time between Joshua's conquest of Israel and the rise of King David. And it was a period when the nation was divided and the people of God repeatedly turned away from God and betrayed God. But we're not going to focus on the national identity. We're going to focus in on one family. There's a severe famine in the land, and the family of Elimelech is in crisis. And as you're going to see, they're not experiencing a lot of hope. So as we continue in their story, we're going to look at four ways that we can harvest a life of hope in crisis. And we don't have a lot of time today, so I'm not going to put a lot of cross-references on the screen, but I've put them in your message guide. So I encourage you throughout the week, read the cross-references in your message guide. So how do we harvest a life of hope in crisis? Here's the first one. We harvest a life of hope in crisis by evaluating our direction. Evaluating our direction. When this family faced crisis, they immediately responded in panic. They didn't seek God. They didn't rely on God. Now, the name Elimelech means my God is king. But when he faces a crisis, he doesn't live up to that name. They were in the promised land. But rather than trusting God, Elimelech decides to come up with his own solution. How many times have we done that? He does, just like we saw in the book of Judges, what was right in his own eyes. And he chooses to move in a direction away from God's promises and protection. Our nation is in a crisis right now. May not be a famine, but people are dying. Some food has been difficult to get. There are food lines that are miles long. We are in a crisis. So what direction are you going? Are you leaning into the promises of God? Or are you trying to make your own path? Make sure you hear this. In times of stress or crisis, everyone, everyone, either runs to or from something. Who or what are you running to right now? Netflix? Food? Alcohol? Fear? Control? Distractions? What are you running to? Because in a crisis, we can either run toward God or we can run toward idols. And that's what they are, is idols. Elimelech and his family chose the latter. 
Now, the shortest route from Bethlehem to Moab was about 50 miles. And to give you some perspective, that's almost the exact same distance if you were to walk from the Brookwood parking lot to Clemson University. Except they didn't have a Honda with a tiger flag to carry them there. We're going to put an image up on the screen. This is the terrain that they would have had to go over. This was actually the easy path that most scholars agree that they took. The journey would have taken them seven to ten days on foot over difficult, rocky terrain, and they didn't have Nikes. The path that we take away from God is always more difficult than we imagined. When I walked away from God, I thought it was going to be smooth sailing, that I could do whatever I wanted, however I wanted. But I fell into a deep, dark valley. And I didn't think I was going to make it out. Are you in a valley today? I'm going to show you a map. This is the route that they likely took. This is what scholars agree, the the route that they likely took. And after they went north, you can see, to avoid the Dead Sea, they crossed the Jordan River. And I think that's significant. Here's why. The Jordan River is a very important boundary because that's where Joshua led the people of God into the provision and the protection that God had been promising them. The Jordan River represents the fulfillment of a 500-plus-year-old promise from God. But it's also the boundary where Moses and all the adult Israelites who rejected that promise were forbidden to cross. So it's not a small thing. It's not a small thing that Elimelech is crossing back over the Jordan, leaving those promises and that protection behind to go live with Israel's enemies. And you may be saying, Josh, why, why are you telling me all of this Jewish history? It's because I think there might be a Jordan River in your life. I think there's reminders of God's promises that you're ignoring and leaving behind because you don't trust him. What direction are you going? Don't act in panic. When you're in crisis, evaluate who you're following and what direction you're going. Don't cross over the Jordan River. So Elimelech crosses the Jordan River. He follows that terrain and he arrives in Moab following his own path. We continue in verse 3. Then Elimelech died. That's sudden. And Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons, without her husband. And of course, we feel for Naomi. But taking control and moving away from the promises of God led to greater tragedy in their life. Now, we have no idea how or why they all died. 
All we know is that they settled in Moab. That's an important word, settled in verse 2. Because it means that they didn't just go there to get food. They were dedicated to the land of their enemies. And we know that after Elimelech dies, his two sons marry Moabite women who worshipped idols. Then the two sons also died. So in addition to the incredible grief, the loss of her husband, and then the death of her two sons, which is unimaginable, This left Naomi alone with no way to care for herself, no way to get food, which is the reason that they went there in the first place. And it left her in a land where she was probably shunned. And to add to that grief, if you put yourself in that time period, her daughters-in-law never had children. So not only are they likely to die now, but the family line will probably die as well. Naomi is overwhelmed with grief. And she only has two people left in her life, Orpah and Ruth. So as you face crisis, and even as we lose people in our lives, we harvest a life of hope in crisis by number two, evaluating our relationships. We harvest a life of hope in crisis by evaluating our relationships. Let's continue in verse 6. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she'd been living and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. So Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth have started the journey back to Bethlehem. We continue in verse 8. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me, May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, no, they said. We want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why? Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up and be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes For I am too old to marry again, and even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. And then catch this, we get a glimpse, a glimpse of her her true feelings. She says, things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Remember that, verse 13. We're going to come back to that statement in just a minute. But let's see what happens with the daughters first. Uh, Verse 14. And again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and back to her gods, You should do the same. So Orpah leaves and starts a hugely successful television empire. (laughs) 
You were all thinking it. No, Orpah goes back to Moab, and she goes back to her gods, her idols. And that's the last we ever hear of Orpah. But don't miss this. Orpah started the journey towards God's promises. But she turned back. Naomi convinced her to turn back. How many people have started their journey toward God with deep emotion, just like Orpah, with a great sense of dedication only to turn back to their old ways and their old life once they realize that the path is going to be difficult? I'll ask you a harder question. How many people have started a journey toward God and were convinced to turn back by people who said they were believers? Orpah was lost. But what about Ruth? When verse 15 says, Ruth clung tightly to Naomi, it's the same word that's used to describe the loyalty between a husband and a wife in Genesis. This is a covenant word. Not just a covenant between Ruth and Naomi, but between Ruth and God. And that brings us to the highlight of chapter 1. Ruth's response to Naomi is regarded as one of the most beautiful statements of loyalty. Not just in the Bible, but in all of literature. Even outside the church, this passage is regarded as a beautiful literary statement. It says this, But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. You know, when I first read that, I said, why does Naomi say nothing more? I think it's because Ruth's faith is greater than Naomi's doubt. And so she had no answer. Because yes, Ruth's dedication to Naomi is beautiful. But this proclamation goes far beyond that. Make no mistake, this is a declaration of faith. She's had an encounter with the God of Israel. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Catch that? Not I'll stay with you until you die, and then I'll go back to my people and back to my gods. No, I am forever dedicating myself to you and to the God of Israel. And when she says, may the Lord punish me, it's not really the word Lord there. She uses the personal name of God. She calls him by name. Her covenant, her promise is with Yahweh, the God of Israel. The Holy Spirit has transformed Ruth. Make sure you catch this. She would not be able to have that dedication to Naomi if she had not been transformed by the Holy Spirit. 
and we'll see that not only has the Holy Spirit transformed Ruth, but as we continue through these chapters, he's going to use Ruth to transform Naomi. So as you go through crisis, are you surrounding yourself with people who are going to push you deeper into your faith? Are you surrounding yourself with Orpahs or Ruths? Evaluate the relationships in your life. That's Ruth. Now, let's take a few minutes to talk about Naomi. And this is a hard one. Our third way, number three, is we harvest a life of hope in crisis by evaluating our attitude. We have to evaluate our attitude in the crisis. Why does Naomi try to send the last two people who love her away? It's because she views herself as the source of hope and provision rather than God. She tells Ruth and Orpah, I can't provide a husband for you. I can't give you security. And since she views herself as the source of their hope and the only source of their hope, and she's hopeless, she has nothing to offer them. And even though Naomi is heading back to Bethlehem, she's still trying to forge her own path. When you first read the words of Naomi and to Ruth and to Orpah, it can seem selfless. She says, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. That sounds noble, right? It sounds like Naomi is sacrificing for the good of her daughters-in-law. And I truly believe that Naomi thinks that she's doing what's best for them. She loves these girls. But make sure you hear this you will run into believers in this world who say they're doing what's best for you but are operating from a place of their own woundedness. And that can lead you down a very dangerous path. Naomi tells them to go back to their families and to go back to their gods. Think about what that means. The primary god of Moab was Kamash who demanded human sacrifices, children. One Moab king had to sacrifice his oldest son, burning him alive. That's what Naomi's despair and bitterness is sending them back to. Remember verse 13. We said we would come back to verse 13. Naomi says, go back. Why? Because things are far more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. So what she's really saying is this. Go back to your idols because I can't help you and neither can my God. A lot of people have walked away from the church. A lot of people have never even met Jesus Christ because they met people who called themselves believers but the subtext of their life said, my God can't help you. What's the subtext 
people are reading in your life in the way that you're responding to the crisis we're in right now. Your life has a subtext. People are reading it. Don't tell them that your God can't help them. We continue in verse 19. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is this really Naomi? The women asked. They made it. They went the full distance of the journey. They're safe now. But how does Naomi respond? Verse 20, she says, Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Naomi is so weighed down by her grief that she can't see anything but bitterness and blame. There's no sense of personal responsibility here. There's no repentance for her own actions. There's no regret for having left the protection and the promises of the promised land. There's no personal reflection. Everything is God's fault. How do we respond in crisis? We have to evaluate our hurt, our motives, and our attitude. Are we responding from a place of trust in God or are we responding from our own woundedness? In my small group, we always say, check yourself before you wreck yourself. And maybe when you do that, maybe when you check yourself, it won't be bitterness that you find. Maybe your past hurts cause you to respond in despair or anger or hopelessness or codependency and control. Maybe, maybe you have an attitude of, of pride or arrogance. What's preventing you from walking the path God's designed for you instead of your own path? What's keeping you from trusting the God of impossible rescues? Naomi, Naomi hasn't found that trust, so she can only respond out of bitterness. Now, I want to say this. If that's where you are today, if you're in a place where you're angry and bitter toward God, I want you to know that's okay. God can handle your anger. God can handle your questions. He can handle your doubts. But you need to know that as long as you keep that bitterness, as long as you keep pushing it down and holding it and savoring it, you will not be able to heal. The thing people don't understand about God is that God would rather have an honest, open conversation with someone who expresses their hurt to him rather than a Christian who's wearing an emotional mask. God will not reject your questions. He will not reject your pain. And neither will we. If you need someone to help you walk through that, please reach out to us. 
we have people in care ministries who want to encourage you and build you up. We're going to put the care ministries contact information on your screen and you can email us or call us, but please reach out. Let us walk with you. Naomi is not the villain here. Naomi is hurting. And I know you might be hurting too. But God has not abandoned her. And he hasn't abandoned you either. Naomi's hope is coming. It's in this book. God's fingerprints are all over this story. She may not see it in this chapter, but God is already working to restore her and he's working and preparing a next chapter for you too. And that leads us to the last way that we harvest a life of hope in crisis. If we become willing to evaluate ourselves, we evaluate our direction and our relationships and our attitude, we may realize that any of those or all of those are off course. And when we realize that, we can still harvest a life of hope in crisis by looking for God's work in the crisis. Number four is we harvest a life of hope in crisis by looking for God's work in the crisis. Final verse of the chapter, verse 22. It says, So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring. When? At the beginning of the barley harvest. They arrive just as there's about to be a huge surplus of food. Do you think that's a coincidence? No. God is working. And despite the fact that Naomi is bitter and Ruth is a foreigner, God is preparing a path of hope for them that is still changing lives today. And as this book unfolds, it becomes unbelievable how he works in their lives. They're looking to survive, but he wants them to thrive. God's been working the whole time. Look back through the chapter, read it throughout the week. He's been working the whole time. Verse 4, of all the women in Moab, was it by chance that Malon marries Ruth? Or was God working to draw Ruth to him the whole time? Verse 16, Ruth's proclamation. She just doesn't decide to completely change her life and risk everything. That only happens when you have an encounter with God. The Holy Spirit transformed her right in front of Naomi's eyes. Verse 19, the two women travel alone through the wilderness and arrive safely in Bethlehem after a week's journey. That's not a safe journey for soldiers, let alone two women at that time. God had a plan for their lives and he protected them. And then they just happen to arrive just as the barley harvest is about to begin. And as you'll see in the next chapter, that's going to provide them with food. And this is only the beginning. The way God navigates the events in their lives is miraculous. It's quiet, but it's miraculous. And it's throughout the entire book. In fact, I, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you to look for that. Read the entire book aloud in one sitting this week. 
read it aloud to yourself, or even better, if you're in a family unit, then, then read it aloud as a family. It only takes 20 minutes to read all four chapters, and you will begin to see how God is everywhere in this story. But my favorite, at least my favorite in chapter one, is actually back in verse six. Back in verse six, it says this. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. How did Naomi hear the Lord had blessed Judah with food? Remember, she's a good seven, ten days journey away from Bethlehem. She's a foreigner in a land that doesn't really care for Israelites, and she's a widow. Listen, the only way she hears that there's food in Bethlehem is if God puts someone in her path to tell her. And why is that so special? It's special because even though Naomi can't see it, very quietly, God is calling Naomi home. That's exactly what God did for me in the midst of a crisis I faced. And he may very well be calling you home today too. Because he's not just everywhere in Ruth's story. He's everywhere in your story. Are you willing to look for where God is working in the crisis that you've been facing, whatever that is? Can you see his fingerprints in your life, his silent hand guiding you or bringing just the right person to you at the right time or just the right message or orchestrating events in just the right way for your rescue? Ask God to show you where he's working. And I would love to have you share that with us. There's a post on our Facebook page right now, and we'll put one up every week. I really want to encourage you to look for where God is working. Look for his fingerprints, and then go and share that in the comment section of that Facebook post. Use text or pictures or videos. Be creative. If you're, if you're posting on another platform other than Facebook, then use the hashtag God's fingerprints and tag Brookwood Church. Let's start looking for God's fingerprints in our lives. But maybe you can't see them yet. Maybe your hurt seems bigger than God right now. That's okay. Facing crisis is part of this broken world. But you don't have to face it alone. And you don't have to face it without hope. Let us walk with you. God wants you to see where he's working. And he's calling you back to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that even when we take our own path, you are working silently to bring us back home. That you are a God 
of victory and you're a God of healing and you're a God of restoration. And even when we're trying to forge our own path, when we're trying to run away from your promises, when we're trying to run away from your protection, that you are a God who continues to pursue us and continues to work silently so that we can come home. And I pray for those of us right now who need to turn back to you or need to turn to you for the first time. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would take the scales off our eyes so that we can see how you've been working all along, how you've been calling us all along. We give you praise because you are a God who is worthy of praise. Help us to see where you're working this week. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next week. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 so that you can get in contact with our Connections team. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. We are so thankful that you listened today. We pray you have a great week.